0: For those who've been coming over these past weeks, starting in the uh, first Monday of January, we've begun to go through in a systematic way for this winter, January and February, um, the Eightfold Path of Practice, which is the fundamental teachings that were given um, as instructions by the Buddha, for living a wise or awakened life. And in the course of the Eightfold Path, um, as we've done so far, the first step we did considered was what's called wise understanding or right understanding, that life has suffering in it and that no one um, is excused from that. But that it's possible to attend to that suffering in all different ways, in ways that create more suffering for oneself and other beings, or in ways that bring freedom and compassion and liberation, and that we all can sense within ourselves the potential for greater compassion and greater understanding. Um, So, wise or right understanding is sensing that potential no matter what life presents to us for living from our Buddha-nature in an awakened way. And then what's called wise attitude or um, right attitude is how to approach the path is really with a sense of openness um, an interest to really discover for yourself what brings freedom of heart, what brings harmony, what brings discord, what brings entanglement. And then we began the steps in the middle of the Eightfold Path after establishing some wise understanding um, that are the basis for compassionate action. Last week we spoke about what's called right speech or wise speech. Um, And the gist of this is, as I said a week or so ago, um, in looking at compassionate action is that meditation's all right but it's not worth terribly much if the rest of one's life isn't in some fundamental harmony in this human realm. Most kind of colloquially it's very hard to sit in meditation after a day of killing and stealing. It doesn't work terribly well or lying or whatever it happens to be. So to follow the Eightfold Path, one old sage put it this way, it is better to ask the way 10 times than to take the wrong road, right? To follow the Eightfold Path really asks us to question how are we acting in terms of our speech, in terms of the attitude or understanding that we bring to the difficulties of life. There is an invitation in this Eightfold Path to discover for yourself that potential of liberation, of freedom of heart, that is the Buddha's joy and happiness, and that was the reason the Buddha went around India talking to people and saying, you too can be happy. You too can discover this freedom of your own true nature. This next step in the Eightfold Path, then, is the one my teacher Ajahn Chah used to love to talk about almost more than anything else. Um, And that is the step of what's called wise action, or right action. And these teachings are part of what's called the timeless Dharma, the eternal law, the Tao, the way things are. And whether it was a thousand years ago, or two thousand years ago, or ten thousand or a hundred thousand years from now, they still describe the principles of a wise human life, wise any kind of life. So the chant goes, Sī lena suko sī poka sambhata Sī silang And the translation is that those who embody wise action, it will lead to their happiness. Those who embody or fulfill wise action, it will lead to their well-being those who embody wise action, it will lead to the liberation of their hearts. Now the main underlying principle of wise action is what what, um, Gandhi called ahimsa or non-harming. What then is right or wise action? asks the Buddha. Herein someone avoids the killing, Or harming of living beings, abstains from it. Without stick or sword, conscientious, full of sympathy and compassion, they are desirous of the welfare of all living beings that they encounter. They abstain from stealing, from taking what does not belong to them. They do not move through the world with thievish intent. They abstain from causing harm through the misuse of sexuality of in- or intoxicants. They move through the world causing neither harm to themselves nor harm to another. If we wish to create peace in the world or love in the world or anything, A benefit when we look out in the world. What's necessary first is to create it in ourselves. If we can't be that peace or that integrity or that compassion that we wish were there in the world that has its struggles and conflicts, if we can't do it, how can we expect it to grow and blossom anywhere else? As St. Augustine says, where love and integrity is, what can be wanting, and where it is not, what can be profitable. This wise action starts in the heart. As Rabindranath Tagore has said, we imagine our mind is a mirror, our heart and mind, more or less accurately reflecting what is happening outside of us. On the contrary, our heart and mind itself is the principal element of creation. And so as we reflect and as we consider and as we intend, so then we act. There's a tremendous joy and happiness in acting when our actions are in harmony, when they bring an integrity to the circumstances of this human life because out of the human mind, or heart, all kinds of things are possible. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's talk of the six realms of existence. The realms of uh, the human realm, and the realms of angels, and the animal realm, and the um, realm of the hungry ghosts, and the realm of jealous gods in the the hell realms. And one of the interesting things in Buddhist psychology is that all these realms are said to be able to be experienced as a human being in your human body. And I've talked about it in other weeks and other times, if you want to know the realm of the hungry ghost that's never satisfied, all you have to do is go up to Las Vegas, right, and spend some time there. And you get a sense of what that realm is like, where the state of consciousness is one that's being driven. I'm imagining the slot machines, but that's just my own. You know, if you're interested in the realm of the, the gods who are, all, who are fight for power, you could just go to Washington, D.C and get you know involved in our political process, and that would give. The animal realm is characterized. I mean, there's all those nice, sweet animals that we think of, but often it's characterized really, as a, a realm that's um, got a lot of fear in it about eating, having enough to eat, or being eaten. Who's going to eat you? you know and there's 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 a whole there's whole human realms that are associated with that you may have spent some time in them um, and so forth and then the hell realms human beings still at this very day there are 30 nations on earth that are in civil war where people are on mass killing one another in some form or another Um, uh, in this so-called modern civilized time in terrible ways with incredible modern technology, the best of modern technology used to torture, kill, maim, harm other beings. So all these are possible out of our human uh, mind and heart, our human potential. We can create suffering in those ways or we can also create the opposite. The suffering comes when we feel the most separate. My tribe, my people, my land, my house, they're different. That kind of hatred or greed or grasping. The harmony comes when we see that it's us. The beauty of wise action is that it stems from the heart of compassion And Whether it succeeds or not doesn't matter. What matters in the end is what is the motivation in the heart. Because you can't determine your success but you can determine what is the intention as you act. And what it brings is in kind of colloquial parlance, the sleep of the just. To go to sleep after living a day or a week, even in difficult circumstances, true to your own integrity and to not consciously choose to harm others or yourself, brings you a kind of rest that nothing else can bring, it brings to us. There's a kind of beauty in our human integrity. And so wise action is the commitment to live without harming, to bring our life into the sphere of compassion. It's called entering the human realm, because if you're involved in a lot of killing and stealing and various things like that, or whatever, where there is action based on greed and hatred and so forth, you're not really in the human realm, you're in the human body. But it's not the inner experience of the human realm. Another way to put it is that wise action or compassionate action offers the gift of protection to everyone you meet. I will not harm you. What a beautiful gift to give to the beings that you encounter. One of my favorite stories about this, which I read probably once a year here or something like that, comes from the Christian Desert Fathers. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment worth 18 gold pieces, both the Old and New Testament, and once a certain young brother came to visit him and seeing the book made off with it. So that day when the abbot went to read his Bible, he found it was gone and he realized the brother had taken it. But he did not send after him to inquire for fear that the brother might add harm by perjuring himself and denying the theft. Imagine that. So the brother went down to the nearby city, to Alexandria, in order to sell the book, and the price he asked was 16 gold coins. And The buyer said, leave it with me that I may find out what it is worth. And with that, the buyer took the book to the Holy Anastasius and said, Father, take a look at this book. Tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold pence is it worth that much? And the abbot looked and said, yes, it is a very fine book. It is worth at least that much. So the buyer went back and said to the young brother, here's your money. I showed the book to abbot Anastasius. And he said, it is indeed a fine book worth at least 16 gold coins. The brother said, is that all he asked? He made no other remarks? No, said the buyer. Well, said the brother, I changed my mind. I don't want to sell this book. And then he hastened back to Abbot Anastasius and begged him with tears to take the book back. But the Abbot would not accept it, saying, Go in peace, my brother, I make a gift of it to you. But the brother wept further and said, If you do not take it back, I shall never find peace. And after that, this young brother dwelt with the Holy Abbot for the rest of his life. And of course these stories which are written down, and that's nearly 2,000 years old, are remembered because they're so extraordinary that someone should do that. And yet at the same time we all recognize it. You recognize the beauty of that story, what a response to make. It's not the stuff but it's the heart that responds to that kind of injustice or that difficulty. Imagine that response yourself, because you can, you can feel it inside, and it's beautiful. It says again, as a gift, no matter what happens, no matter what forces, what difficulty arise, as a gift from my spiritual life and heart, I will not harm you. What a gift to give to others. And when you meet another person, a being, with that Kind of integrity—it's a very wonderful thing—and you respect them and you love them. Um, I remember being in Thailand and going to a temple called Wat Tham and Wat Tham um, was uh, an addictions treatment center run by this great old abbot who had been a Thai narcotics agent for a long time. <laughs> Somewhat unsuccessfully, but you know how the war on drugs is going on drugs is going in every country, pretty unsuccessfully. And, you know and it's really terrible because it's become in America really it's it's just a disguise for our uh, racism or our poverty or things like that. It's terrible. But anyway, this Thai narcotics agent had um, an auntie who was a, a a Buddhist saint, and he went to visit her one day. And she said, Sonny, you're doing it all wrong. You know, you're not going to help people by arresting them. You need to actually heal them. And he said, Well, how do I heal them? And she said, You take, you know, drop that job and come and practice with me. Become a monk, I'll show you. So he became a monk and she made him take the strictest of the monks' vows that you could possibly. She also taught him herbal medicine. And eventually he set up this monastery. And the monks of the monastery kept the 227 basic precepts of a monk only to eat what's put in your hand that day, not to keep money. But they added 10 more practices. They wouldn't ride in any conveyance. So when the abbot needed to go to Bangkok for some reason or other, which was about a hundred miles away, he took his walking staff and he walked to Bangkok. And then when he was finished, he walked back. And you would go in there and there'd be 300 people going through treatment at a time. And part of it, it wasn't Buddhist meditation, I mean if you're um, really addicted, meditation is useless, it's it's not the right practice. The practices were chanting and devotion because that's very strong, they're putting your faith in something. Um, like 12-step program and something higher, the practices began with this herbal medicine. He gave a kind of purgative that his aunt taught him from these different herbs. And for four days, you just spent those four days lying on the floor throwing up, basically, and purifying your body. And then there were chant purifications, and there were work purifications. It was really purification. And in the end, there was a taking of some precepts. Um, And you began to wonder, well, how does this place work? Look at it. Is it the herbal medicine that works? Because it had the best cure rate of any addiction treatment center in Southeast Asia. Um, Three-quarters of the people who came got sober and didn't go back to whatever drugs they'd been using. And admittedly, they also arranged for them to go back to monasteries and communities that would care for them. But the clue came when you met the abbot. Not only was there the herbal medicine and the Buddhist faith and all of that, but the abbot was like a a rock. He just sat there and he met your eyes with his, and you had a feeling that his inner integrity was greater than the power of anybody's addiction who walked into that temple. And so his spirit was really at the center of the cure of that place. So when we meet someone, who has that kind of virtue, or that kind of integrity, that commitment to non-harming, which is right action. There is a kind of fragrance, a shine, a beauty to it. The fragrance of sandalwood, dagara, and rose bay will go only as far as the wind," said the Buddha. But the fragrance of the heart of virtue, of the virtuous heart, rises even to the gods. So wise action then, is our trustworthiness, our compassion. And that becomes the gift of protection in, in our life for ourselves and other beings. People say, how do I get protection? You know, here's a nice protection cord you get from some great lam or something like that. What do you get protected from when you do this? You take the precepts and the vows, I won't kill, I won't steal, I won't harm others. So somebody asked, um, You know, what do these protect you from, to one great Lama? And he said, why yourself, of course, (laughs) you know, the real protection that's necessary. They also express the vows that we take to not harm other beings, express our interconnectedness, because it's not them, it's us. And if we sense really deeply what would cause us to harm another being, at its root it will be fear, greed, aggression, all those things, ambition, jealousy, that are based on a false sense of separation. They're a kind of inner prison. And the step of the Eightfold Path of non-harming is to step out of that prison and into the freedom of the heart. It's a movement of spirit. It has a lot of forgiveness in it as well. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, wrote Longfellow, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we could really see them and what they've been through. And there's such a kind of value to it. Um, Our integrity is really worth so much. Remember this passage from William Faulkner where he says, some things you must always be unable to bear, some things you must never stop refusing to bear, injustice and outrage and dishonor and shame. No matter how young you are or how old you got, not for praise or cash, your picture in the paper, or money in the bank, neither, just refuse to bear them. So the Buddha's instructions on how to embody a spiritual life, the most basic and simple and universal instructions, how to fulfill a spiritual life, weren't so much about emptiness, you know, and the meditative states of the samadhi and jhana. If you really want to live a spiritual life, do these simple vows, these simple practices, and your life will be transformed. They are the commitments of compassion. Now traditionally, they're described in terms of these, um, whether you call them precepts or vows or inner commitments, and they become a a form by which we can examine our action. The first one is uh, goes like this Panati pata Ratmanisi ka patam I undertake the training of the heart or the training of compassion to not kill or cause harm to other beings. And you go into a temple and you recite that. Each time you go, they, they have you do it each time because they know that you probably messed up in the week in between. So when you go back, you can kind of reaffirm it. What it says is, first, do no harm. To move through the world not caught by our aggression, our aversions or fears to such an extent that we would harm another being. Um, And it really means to make conscious how we live in the environment of humans and other beings, how we drive, how we treat the beings around us. You know, I always talk about this cartoon from the New Yorker in hunting season where the deer are on the hillside and the hunters have their guns down below. And the deer, little balloons are talking to each other saying, why don't they thin their own goddamn herds, you know. (laughs) Because it's very easy to make excuses about too many deer. I don't know, I I haven't seen very many deer on 101, you know, as I'm trying to drive in all that heavy traffic. It doesn't seem like deer are the problem here. (laughs) And what's lovely, if you go into one of the great forest monasteries and meet the monks who live there, is even the way that they walk, they try to walk so as not to harm living beings. It's such a beautiful practice to make it your, your action to not cause harm to small beings and large. The small ones don't like it, if you look and notice, they don't enjoy it any more than anybody else. Um, or if you, you watch Tibetan Llamas and so forth, we've brought various lamas to the zoo and the aquarium in Monterey and things like that. They're so happy and they're waving at all their brothers and sisters who are in, you know, animal incarnations and may you be enlightened soon, you know, it's really it's fabulous. Uh-huh. There's such a spirit of reverence that's there with each being they meet and even in the monastery where I lived, in Ajahn Chah's Forest Monastery, which was on the border of um, Laos and Cambodia in Thailand, Mekong River Valley. And during I was there, I'd worked on medical teams in the Peace Corps for a couple of years in villages there. Um, And then I became a a full-time monk. Um, And at night we could watch the bombers go overhead and see the flashes of the bombs in Cambodia and Laos. It was relatively close. And we used to get visits. I used to get visits from my friends who were still working in the peace movement for the Quakers in Vietnam or in Laos and stuff, people that I'd known. Um, And they'd come and say, what are you doing sitting here? You know, there's a war on. You have to go and get out there and help. Um, But in some way, there's always a war on, isn't there? And um, they would talk to my teacher and so forth. Said, "Well, you come and be with us for a while and see?" And they would stay for a week or two weeks. And if you've been ever where there's a war, if you've ever spent time in a war zone, people go really crazy. There's a kind of possession or insanity that takes over human beings wherever it is. And um, you know, they'll steal from their own temples to sell it to get money. they'll They'll harm people that used to be part of their community and um, because they're so frightened. It, um, and that was just a few miles away. You go there, and it was really insane. And here in this monastery, some hundreds of acres, monks and nuns, you could lose your wallet or your gold watch or whatever was of value, and someone would pick it up and take it and bring it to the altar, and a little sign on, did anyone lose their, their valuables? Or, you know, you could come in with any kind of difficulty, and someone would meet you and say, is there something I can do for you? Um, and they would speak the truth. And it was as if the monastery was a living library that had been there for centuries of the possibility of human beings to live in respect for one another and all the creatures of the forest. And even if the war was all around, you could come and you could be reminded that there is a different way for us to live. And it was carried, it was embodied in that place. So this is the first Um, training practice, the vow or commitment not to kill or not to harm. And in a positive way, it's the cultivation, our care, reverence for all life. Um, I remember being at a wonderful um, medicine ceremony out on the Great Plains and it was actually led by an Iroquois medicine man named Mad Bear, an East Coast medicine man, and he stood up and did. It was it was a, a whole group of psychologists and psychiatrists and so forth. that was, you know, people who really needed spiritual practice anyway. Um, and he stood up and he did a long prayer. It was 45 minutes or an hour to the spirits of the winds in the east and the winds in the west and the winds in the south and the winds in the north and the, the grains that moved and the clouds in the sky. And it was, by the end, of it was the most exquisite meditation to open the senses to the mystery within which we breathe and move and live. But it was done with great reverence to this living earth. And so not only is it not to kill, but it's actually to care for life, a kind of ecological and compassionate way of living on the earth, to minimize harm. Because actually every time we drive, Every time we get in a jet and fly someplace, you know, both the energy that we're using and the bugs that gets washed on the windshield and the traffic and all of the pollution and so forth, I mean, we contribute to the difficulties of human life. And it doesn't say not to do those things, but to do them consciously, to minimize our harm. That is the the undertaking, the commitment of compassion. Of wise action. I won't cause harm in that way. doesn't mean being rigid about it either. When there were a lot of roaches at this Zen center, you know, and the students went to the Zen master and said, they're in all the food and people aren't coming. And it's just, what should we do? Should, we've tried everything. We've cleaned everything. We've tried borax. whatever. It hasn't worked. What should we do? You know, should we exterminate them, but we took a vow not to kill? What should we do? And he looked back and he said, I'm not going to tell you. That was his answer. You have to figure it out. Because it's not always so easy, but what we do can be conscious. We can minimize harm. Then the second of these traditional vows or commitments of compassion is the vow or commitment not to steal, just as the first one is not to aggress against others. This is non- greed, non-grasping, not to covet. And traditionally, it's not to take that which isn't given, because in a culture or community where there's stealing, like with a culture where there's killing, um, everybody's afraid. And there's bars on the windows and alarms and all of the kinds of insanity that come from that arise in a community. So we offer the non-harming of not taking what doesn't belong to us. And look how it complicates your mind to do it. And the fact is that we don't own stuff anyway. We just have it temporarily. You think you own it, but you have to give it all back and you don't get to keep a single thing. You are merely the accountant in the firm, right? Keeping track of it. And our culture is one that says, oh, get more, buy more, have more, own more, as if that were really true. You don't own anything. You use it for a time. So instead, this precept says first not to steal, not to take what doesn't belong to us. And similarly, this vow or this practice is to cultivate a sense of shared responsibility for the limited resources of this valley, of this county, of this bay area, of this community, of this earth. And if we lie on our back, in a spring night, and look into the stars. Or let me see if I can find this beautiful passage from Einstein. Here it is. Einstein says, Still, he said, there are moments when one feels free from one's own small identification with this human limitation and in inadequacies. At such moments, one imagines that one stands on some spot of a small planet gazing in amazement at the silent, profoundly moving beauty of the eternal, the unfathomable of life and death, and they flow into one and there is neither evolution nor destiny, only the precious presence of life as it is. Einstein talks about the sense of mystery a lot. Imagine if you see yourself as the caretaker of the earth, as the guardian of the earth, and all her creatures, of your beloved the earth. Because in fact, you know, not only is it not to steal or not be piggy, but to realize as we share things that there's a great kind of natural generosity that comes from the heart of uh, a Buddha in us. A story from Tales of the Magic Monastery, which is tales written by an old Trappist monk, a friend of mine, when he got tired of his own monastery and tried to conceive of what you could find in the real monastery, which mm-hmm. he called the Magic Monastery. I went to the Magic Monastery after being tired of the bickering of my fellow monks and nuns. I went seeking. I was met by the guest master. He asked me what I was looking for. Frankly, I said, I'm looking for the pearl of great price. He looked at me with so much compassion. He slipped his hand to his pocket and drew it out and gave it to me. Mm -hmm. It was just like that. I was dumbfounded. (laughs) I began to protest, you don't want to give it to me. (laughs) Don't you want to keep it for yourself? But, 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 when I kept this up, he finally said, look, Is it better to have the pearl of great price or give it away? Well, now I have it. I don't tell anyone. From some there would be disbelief and ridicule. You, the pearl of great price, ha! Others would be jealous. Someone might try to steal it. I have to take care of it. I do have it. But there's that nagging question. Is it better to have it or to give it away? How long will that question rob me of my joy? (laughs) So that each of these practices, one is to refrain from harming, but more than that to actually care for the creatures of the earth. One is to refrain from taking or stealing or grasping, but more than that, it's a kind of generosity, a cultivation of the spirit of Dhamma. You know, and initially there the, the spirit of generosity we talk about is um, kind of tentative giving. Oh, I have this, maybe I don't need this sweater, you know, I have too many sweaters, I'll give it to Salvation Army. Saying, say, oh no, I might need it, you know, next year when I go camping, I should put it in the attic. And you kind of go back and forth and I say, all right, I'm going to give it away. And you're, you're not really sure, but when you do, it really it feels pretty good, doesn't it? You know how, how good garage sales can feel. Just, it's not the money, it's just the divesting part, right? <laughs> so it's good, it's the beginning. That's, te- that's tentative giving. Then there's friendly giving, uh, or brotherly giving, and sisterly giving, where you say, well, I have this and, and you don't have, please take this, you know, share, uh, let us share what we have. And there's a bigger heart to it. It feels so beautiful. And then that grows and it turns into what's called kingly or queenly giving, royal giving, where the delight of giving is so much greater than the possession of stuff that you want to give away the best that you have of your love, your time, your energy, your money, your things. Why don't you enjoy this? And you so enjoy the pleasure of someone else's receiving that that becomes the happiness of the heart. Daniel Berrigan, who writes, yes. Sometime in your life, hope that you might see one starved person, the look on their face when the bread finally arrives. Hope that you might have baked it, or bought it, or even kneaded it yourself. And for the look on their face, for your meeting their eyes across a piece of bread, you might be willing to lose a lot, or suffer a lot, or even die a little. the last um last month, remember at the end of December, I said we were gonna on the last Monday of December, we were going to collect money for the soup kitchen in San Rafael, which we do collect money on Monday nights different times every year for the soup kitchen in San Rafael mm-hmm. and so forth, but we didn't end up doing it because that that Monday night was the was Christmas day, and not very many many people came. I said, "Well, we're not going to get very much money, let's save it and so I've, I've announced, I didn't last week, but over the course of weeks, that tonight would be the night. So that means all the money that you gave for parking and you gave to come in here and that you give in the baskets as you go out, which I hope is a lot. I want you there and give as much as you can. We'll go to a couple of things. It will go to the soup kitchen in San Rafael for people who are cold and hungry. It will go to the Indian earthquake relief, which is really necessary. And a little bit of it will go to our prison project as well Um, for the, primarily men, but some women as well. Um, Mostly our prison project is working with men in San Quentin. Um, And the last thing we did before Christmas was to collect toys for them to give to their children. Because when you're inside and you have nothing to give to your own children, it's really a sad Christmas. It's not that the children don't get something, but that the fathers don't get to give anything to their children. You can hear how important really it is. It's it's so important to be able to give something as a human being. And when we were um, monks and nuns living in Asia, um, the spirit of generosity um, just permeated the societies of Thailand and Burma and parts of India and so forth. And you would come into a village and they would feed you and care for you. And uh, I mean, you have to sign up a year in advance to be able to offer food to the monks and nuns in Mahasi Saido's monastery where I practiced in Rangoon. So many people love this place and honor the dedication of the practitioners. It's a big monastery. There are a thousand or two thousand people who practice at once. And you can't, you need to wait in line to offer food. There's so much joy in supporting the people. Who are awakening. So much love, uh, generosity in the society. But it's not just there. I mean, you can go to North Africa, you know, to the old villages, to the Bedouins, and, and, um, you know, the kind of Arab hospitality, and be taken in and fed and clothed as if you were a king or a queen. But the truth is that you are not the king or queen. They're the kings and queens who know how to give this royal giving, say yes, you know you've come into our village what can we do for you so this is the the vow is the commitment not to hold on not to steal or take what doesn't belong to us but the practice is really the giving heart two more of these vows or commitments to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct misuse of sexuality And I always ask the basic fundamental question for this how many people in the room have made idiots of themselves in their sexual relations? Do not bother raising your hand. (laughs) Because it's that universal, isn't it? Hmm? All the hands. Some people would raise two hands, right? (laughs) So this vow says that with this powerful energy of sexuality, again, a commitment to not harm out of aggression or addiction or whatever it is and traditionally it's refraining from um, rape and incest and and adultery and various things that cause harm. Um, Now it's you know the most simple translation is not to cause harm to oneself, to a second person or to anybody else, to a third person through our actions. Because sexuality can be associated with grasping or aggression or all these kinds of things harm of one another or it can be associated with respect, with intimacy, with love, with care for another being. And so we can actually cultivate the positive side of it, of the, the quality of intimacy and communion. It's such a powerful energy because it takes us so close to birth and death, doesn't it? I mean, that's how we got born. Remember that? Well, if you think back, right, it creates human beings, but also in the surrender of that union, it is one of the times of the most natural samadhi, one of the most natural um, wholeness or letting go beyond the small sense of self that comes to us as human beings. Um, and so there's really something sacred about it. And in fact, you know, all these kind of workshops about sexual tantra and things like that, Underlying them all is the quality of worship to make that energy, uh, to allow that energy to be held in a sacred way in one's partner. And then the other vow or training of wise action is to not cause harm to oneself or others through the misuse of drugs or intoxicants. And again, first there's the part of restraint. 10 million alcoholics, 20 million drug addicts, their families, their children, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires, the majority of child abuse. I mean, I don't, I can hardly, you know, stop going down a list of the amount of suffering that can be caused by the misuse of this. More fundamentally, it's the loss of our awareness of our humanness. That is so precious and, as you know, not so easy to cultivate. So one is the vow or commitment out of compassion to not cause harm to self or others through that misuse. And then on the positive side, it is to cultivate and develop and and nurture that which keeps us conscious rather than that which makes us unconscious. Now imagine if human beings in our society were to take even one of these vows. Even half. Suppose the society took the vow not just not to kill or this this practice of compassion, but not to kill human beings. Alright, we could still kill other kinds of beings, but I mean you wouldn't even recognize the world, would you? Suppose we did that. If we took seriously the practice of not speaking falsely, you know, not telling tell speaking the truth, which talked about last time. It, we, our whole It would be unrecognizable. I mean, first of all, entire industries would go out the window, you know A good part of what's printed and written and spoken, and our entire entertainment, television I mean, it, it would be phenomenal, not to speak of our relationships. There's so much power to the commitment to even one of these practices. And it's not about sin, or you're supposed to, people take these practices as a training over and over. It is the prescription or the medicine, the Buddha said, for those who find themselves in conflict in life, how to create a life that really brings happiness and beauty to their heart. And it's said that these practices of compassion and non harming grow in the beginning, they're kind of restraint. To restrain from oneself from aggression and greed and and so forth, not getting caught in those things, you know, because it's pretty easy. Um, our society kind of um, celebrates it in the movies and in, in our culture in different ways. So the first part is just learning, even from the beginning, the possibility of restraint, um, and then it's possible to learn that there's a there's a happiness in it. You know that little book, Children's Letters to God? This is the sequel, My Mom's the Best Mom. It's children's letters about their moms. Um, When my little brother bothers me, my mother just says, you're the mature one, handle it. How I'd handle it is I'd mail him to Australia. (laughs) So this is an attempt at not harming, right? (laughs) Or, My mom hates when I leave my clothes all around on the floor. She says, I'm not happy, Hannah. So I pick them up because it's better for me when she's happy. (laughs) So the first level, and it's really pretty elementary, is learning the possibility of not causing harm through a certain restraint. And then you begin to notice when you might tell something that wasn't true. when you might harm another being or when you might take something, you know, and there are all these kind of fuzzy areas. What about, you know, how we drive or what about our financial dealings? What about our taxes? I mean, it's very interesting, you know, how to really look and to look at what the motivation is when we're about to act. Is it greed? Is it, you know, is there integrity to it? What does it actually feel like inside? Then the next level beyond past the kind of restraint of these vows, is that cultivation of compassion, where instead of it being not greed or not hatred, it's actually love, it's generosity, it's wakefulness. And then gradually it becomes what's called um, shining virtue or the, the kind of um, uh, innate compassion, where it's not a practice at all, not by rules, not by trying to do it, but it's the sense that we are really all in it together. And how could you harm, how could you not care for this other being that is your sister or your brother? other ants and sister spiders. And you should hear the Dalai Lama talk about insects. He just goes on and on about how pa- he wished he could meditate with the patience that a spider makes her web. He said, I learned so much from the spiders in my room. And you know, I wish I could practice with the dedication of these ants that are moving these things. And he, he says, I get so inspired in my practice watching the, the Buddha nature in all these little creatures. Now, the truth is that our hearts are good. We simply forget to ask. We get so lost in the whirlwind of speed and in habit, and in the small sense of self, that we forget the beauty that is there in our own true nature. And that's what these practices of wise action lead to. Not that they make you a better person, but that they remind you of the beauty that is already there. O nobly born, or you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember who you really are, act with that dignity, live from that place of compassion. Dalai Lama puts it this way. He says, Now, religion is very good, but sometimes I think religion and even moral teachings are a luxury. Even without religion, we can manage, we can survive. But compassion and love, without these things, we cannot survive. Let's do a little reflection. Let yourself sit for a moment. becoming quiet and coming back to one's own heart and mind and breath and body. And in these simple practices, the vows of compassion are non-harming. Which particular practices do you need to pay attention to? The one of not killing and harming, the one of not stealing, cultivating generosity, the one of not causing harm through the misuse of sexuality, cultivating love in that area, the one of not causing harm to yourself or others through the misuse of intoxicants. The one from last week of speaking what's true and helpful, not causing harm in words. Let yourself reflect which ones are the ones that ask for your attention. Let yourself imagine as well or sense the beauty, the peacefulness of heart, the integrity that could come if you really, really follow your inner compassion in that area. If you could recite one training precept, one vow to yourself right now that would really help your life to follow, what would it be?